Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. This week, Professor Jeremy Black argues that campaigns across universities to decolonise the curriculum are often less about broadening the range of interpretations of the past and more about prompting a radical alternative political agenda. Professor Jeremy Black is Professor of History at Exeter University and author of Imperial Legacies, The British Empire Around the World. Also on this week's podcast, Graham Stewart talks to critic Nicholas T. Parsons, author of Civilization and Its Malcontents, on how oligarch money is turning the art world into a circus of absurdity, while the critic's artist-in-residence, Miriam Elia, discusses with Graham about the satisfaction of caricaturing the postures of the chattering classes. Decolonising the curriculum has in recent years been a demand of student activists, but it is now also becoming a preoccupation of many academics. Uh, Professor Jeremy Black, when people speak of decolonising the curriculum, what do they actually mean? Well, in general terms, they mean something different from what they are ostensibly saying. What they're ostensibly saying is that the curriculum has been overly concerned uh, with uh, a sort of narrative of Western societies, one in which uh, empire has been regarded overly sympathetically, and that there is a need to redress that. So that's what they're ostensibly saying. But in reality, in many cases, there is not a kind of desire for a rebalancing. There is instead a assumption, a, firstly, that traditional interpretations were inherently wrong. Secondly, that history as an, in, an intellectual uh, activity must be about um, a kind of politicization of the past for the service to the service of the present. And thirdly, that in doing that, you can castigate all past Western societies because they were implicated in imperialism and imperialism was naturally and necessarily in their eyes racist. We'll come in a moment to the politicisation that this movement involves, but uh, I, I wonder if first we might give them the benefit of the doubt um, and say, you know, that, that old and rather tired saying about history being written by the winners, uh, is at its best this movement an attempt to just broaden our understanding and allow other narratives to be felt, and that whilst many of the activists may go too far, and nevertheless there, there is something, something welcome within this broader movement. Well, I think that I mean, if you take, for example, the country where um, this debate is possibly most developed, which is the United States, there already are well-established uh, university curricula, the world civilization curricula, endlessly produced in loads of textbooks and courses. And I think those have been, I, one can fairly say, broadened out for at least two decades, if not longer. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, in Britain, uh, possibly uh, there has been less teaching. Uh, teaching of world history, but that's not because there has been a narrative of, um, of opposition to the non-West. It's simply because British history as an intellectual activity tends to be more specialized or possibly one would say overly specialized. But 
you know, the idea that um, bar for decolonizers, that university history courses would be wrapping themselves in the flag in a sort of late Victorian fashion is, uh, is just ridiculous. It's a travesty of what, what has been in syllabuses and what currently is in syllabuses. Is there the tradition, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, going back a long way now, but I, I'm thinking of uh, Professor John Seeley at Cambridge in the second half of the 19th century, very eminent historian, uh, whose expansion of England had a, a, a very imperially minded focus in which uh, empire w- was seen as, as a... Yes, but Graham, a... you're setting up the late 19th century as an opposition to the present day. And what I am suggesting to you is that that we are actually a long way different to the late 19th century. Um, So I'm not sure that I would uh, regard Seeley as an accurate account of what would be there were it not for decolonizers. Yes, but my my point was really that the decolonizers are doing now what... um, uh, the, the likes of Professor Seeley did did in the 19th century. So, in a way, this is an echo of, of a past attempt to to see history through a particular uh, uh, politicised prism. That's an interesting viewpoint. I mean, presumably on that basis, that in Germany or or the Soviet Union or authoritarian dictatorships, one is going to allow present day excesses because that in some way they match and and mirror those of uh, the the Nazis or the or the communists. And um, the fact that in a in a different age there was a public history in Britain which these days we would not concur with does not mean that therefore today we should throw away all sense of value in order to pursue politicisation. There was a, a, a very public debate a few years ago at Oriel College, Oxford, that the roads must fall campaign, which garnered a lot of uh, media attention. That subsided now. Um, but actually, is your point that uh, this has become a, a much more invidious uh, moment now because academics are actually taking the case on board. Who are the academics uh, who are really uh, pushing forward this agenda and how much success are they having or is this just something that's exciting Twitter but not really embedding itself in the curriculum? Right, well let's just take the first point. I'm not sure I would agree, leave aside the specifics of of whether Rhodes uh, stands or falls, I'm not sure that I would agree with you that there isn't quite a a extensive uh, activity vis-a-vis statues and other mem- memorials of the past, uh, the renamings of buildings, um, the um, castigation of past donors. I think one has seen this uh, recently and currently in Bristol. I think one's seen it in the University of Glasgow. Um, you know, a number of the Oxbridge colleges. So, first of all, I'm uh, I wouldn't regard it simply as something that has um, that has passed. Uh, That's point one. Um, Second of all, I think that in the case of um, where in the academy this is coming from, I think it's fairest to say that you're associating this particularly with some subjects and some disciplines, Um, most particularly uh, English literature and history. Uh, But you can also see the same sort of similar debates in geography, in a man like Daniel Dorlin, who I've written about uh, his attitudes at Oxford, some of the 
things that he's said. Uh, you could see this in, in political science. Um, and I would say that there, is, there are aspects of it across the humanities and the social sciences. Now, where does it come from? First of all, it is not, there is not some, as it were, secret committee sitting there in some bunker uh, planning cultural war. But nevertheless, there is a sense that, um, that education, which now at university level is roughly half of the school-age population, is an opportunity to propagate particular values and ideologies. And I think that you can see that then playing through differently in different disciplines. So in English literature, it is you know, an issue that's been going on for decades, as you will know, the attack on canonical texts, the argument that one should be uh, devoting much more attention to hitherto supposedly or allegedly marginalized views, uh, the notion that there isn't in fact a canon. Um, so I think that that is a, um, a debate that's been going on for really quite a lot of time, uh, but it is one that is possibly stronger now. And it may well be that what you're talking about is a generational situation, that people that came through a period of radicalization in the 1960s and 1970s um, are now the people making the decisions and running the roost. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, I actually think it's a more profound uh, shift uh, that has been going on. Um, and in the case of history, um, if one's looking particularly at what's called decolonization, which is the debate about um, empire and the imperial links, um, there has not been much particular uh, favor for empire for quite a while. But the idea that it is a project sort of simply vitiated by inherent racism is one that's been very much pushed to the fore in recent years. And I don't think it's tremendously helpful, not least because it's a sort of parody of the complexity of the past. You've written an article uh, for The Critic Online entitled Can British History Be Saved? And in that article, one of the academics you make reference to is Catherine Hall, who is a, uh, who is a professor emerita uh, in, in uh, British Social and Cultural History at University College London. Uh, for those who haven't yet read your article, what, what, what is it that she is... Uh, requiring or, or requesting, I should say, uh, history departments around the UK to, to actually do? Well, first of all, I would urge people to read it, and if I might plug a book as well, I would urge them also to read My Imperial Legacies, which in fact uh, goes through this uh, debate, this issue, at, uh, at considerable length, and would I hope, with I hope, uh, suitably supportive footnotes. Um, but what I was particularly uh, talking about was her as an example of a broad thing, that her writing about uh, the Macaulays in the 19th century um, and their discussion about empire, in which she very much forefronts her own views on the present day. And those views, if you've read the book, you will know that she thinks that British society is inherently racist, etc., etc. Um, and she then argues that, A, this makes her a more appropriate person, person to consider the past, and B, that that makes, therefore, um, a more appropriate way in which to present British history. So it's, as it were, the conclusion.
inclusion comes first and everything else is just there to support it. And, you know, you might say that's rather an alarming title, Can One Save British History? But quite frankly, I do not see that approach as a particularly scholarly one. Um, and, you know, I've got to be polite with reference to what the law is. Uh, but I've, I do fear, as something I've written about in earlier points, that if students came up with these kind of arguments um, to support their own ideology, whatever it is, uh, people would mark it down. But somehow it seems appropriate for, you know, I mean, Catherine Hall is a fellow of the British Academy. Now, all sorts of rather odd people are fellows of the British Academy. But these are people that are running the show, putting in, you know, determining um, uh, research awards, etc., etc. And I do not think that this is an appropriate way to conduct what should be a, a, a branch of intellectual life and teaching which is open to a variety of opinions. Um, you know, I mean, let's be clear about this. We are talking about people who regard uh, being a conservative as a pathology. In other words, they, they have a very much a party preview on the past, the present and the future. And they don't really seem, in my view, to have an inherent commitment to a pluralism of opinion. So to go back to what you were saying earlier, yes, of course, it's perfectly reasonable for people to have a number of different views on the past. It's not an experiment that we can readily repeat, obviously. So therefore, one can have a number of different analyses. And I'm not in any way, uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm not in any way saying somebody's books should not be published because they're fallacious. Uh, one would hope they stand the tire, you know, they stand the crest of test of criticism and people can debate them. But the problem as I see it is that the um, academic profession as a whole um, is being pushed very much um, towards taking as normal and normative uh, values that are very partisan. I suppose that a question would be is it really the case that alternative views, by which I mean alternative views to, to those that are being pushed by the uh, decolonizers in this debate, that, that these are actually being taken off, off the curriculum entirely so that students are only getting one side of the picture? Or is it the case that actually in reading lists and general approaches, a variety of voices are still there to be studied but uh, only one conclusion will be will be uh, marked favourably from students doing their, their proper reading. Well, I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, but I think it more particularly, if you wish to get appointed or promoted or get a grant, you have to come away with a come forward with a certain agenda. And I think that that uh, very much limits debate. Um, I think that, um, I mean, my, you know, again, I've got to be careful here because I don't particularly wish to see myself in litigation. I've got other things to do with my time. But I am, I am unimpressed um, with uh, the offerings of um, so-called um, uh, scholars on imperialism, most of which seem to be just diatribes about the British Empire. Uh, interestingly, often wildly decontextualized and uh, often heavily ignorant about other empires, both Western and non-Western, which would provide interesting comparison. Um, and I think your point that you make about what is likely, what views are likely to be raised is, a, is an instructive one. Um, there are obviously 
um, one or two um, conservative academics um, in the arts and social sciences. They're more commonly uh, found in the physical sciences, but they're generally regarded as mavericks. And um, of course, if they express their views, they might be told that they are intimidating students who don't like to hear them. Um, so it's it's these are really quite difficult. Uh, waters we're in began imperial legacies with uh, an episode in London in 2018 when a group of students from SOAS, the School of African and Oriental Studies, um, descended on a, a cafe in Finsbury Park, which they uh, found racist because it commemorated Winston Churchill, um, and they demanded that the cafe. Um, ceased to put what it what they presented as uh, the amnesia of British colonialism quote which is offensive to those who continue to experience institutional racism etc 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 as well as obviously defacing the mural of Churchill and thorough and thoroughly um, having attack on what they subsequently uh, called the white supremacist heteropatriarchal capitalist order now you might regard that as part of a debate and maybe Maybe it is part of a debate, but the way in which it is aggressively advanced, and I have to tell you, there are people calling themselves academics. I was reading a research proposal from somebody who was a professor in one of the campuses in London, which had no different in its tone and content. Um, I find that uh, to be limiting the uh, the uh, the field of of consideration because they are making out alternative views in the most hostile light possible. So, from my point of view, I've always found Marxism interesting. I've always found that there are valuable insights to be gained by looking at social science accounts that are not those that I uh, sort of necessarily uh, would politically sympathize with. But I suspect that this willingness to cross the road and look in different directions, which is what I would hope uh, scholarship is about, a pluralistic uh, searching out for different analyses, for looking at evidence and following it, even if it uh, challenges your earlier views and completely overturns them. That is what is exciting. In fact, the most exciting thing is to find out that you were wrong and that you need to change your views on something because of new or newly interpreted evidence. Evidence. But what troubles me about these people that we're talking about in SOAS and other such institutions is that is not their idea of academic life or of education. Their idea is very much one of the line and the line has to be uh, imposed. And I think that that is very dangerous. Given the power that, that these academics seem to have to create an intimidatory environment and also the powers of preferment of which you spoke about, which is not looking favourably on people with a more traditional uh, approach to the study of history. What is to be done? Are the traditionalists, if I may use that um, not quite accurate term, are they going to have to set up their own private universities, uh, you know, a safe space? for those who don't bind into the decolonizing curriculum 
approach, or or how how would the tide turn? Well, I don't know if the tide will turn. I mean, as a true conservative, I suspect I'm a pessimist. Um, but I don't know if the tide will turn. Several things. First of all, a lot of the more interesting writing and research, and this is the first period of my life this has been true of, is now taking part outside the university environment. In other words, some of the better works of history are being produced by non-academics. And that's interesting, because also, obviously, some of the terrible works come out in that context. But that is very interesting. And that reflects, I'm afraid to say, the pointillism, the often very narrow-minded perspectives, both intellectually and pedagogically and politically, of a lot of academics in some of the universities. So that's point number one. You do not have to imagine that, whereas nobody else can really outside big companies afford the kind of scientific research of a, of a university, the situation is very different as far as um, academic research in the social sciences and the humanities is concerned. As far as teaching is concerned, or let's turn this round, learning, um, you might well argue that um, many people who take, take my subject, your subject, Graham, which is history, um, read history books mostly in their latter years, and they are possibly uh, more able to choose and weigh and understand the situation that they're reading about than, shall we say, callow 18-year-olds who are bored and not necessarily doing anything other than filling up spaces. So the teaching of a learning side is not necessarily best covered by universities. But um, I also think that as long as we remain a society in which it, there are uh, bodies like the critic, which offer diff the expression of different views, then hopefully enough people out there will say, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, these kind of uh, developments that I'm talking about should at least be scrutinized carefully. And let me close, because I, I know that you only have so much time. Let me close with the point. This is as or should be as disturbing if you are on the political left as it is for myself, who is a conservative. Because what it is, is it's a closing of the mind. It really is. It is determining that a viewpoint is the acceptable viewpoint. And we've already seen, you, listeners will have their own view on this, we've already seen the way that feminists, some of them have been trashed because they didn't have the, uh, the correct views or what were held to be the correct views on transsexuals. Um, the, this kind of attitude that there is a, a, a true view and that only, as it were, the, uh, those who are um, part of that, uh, uh, that tendency can understand and propagate it, that is disturbing, very disturbing, and it should be as disturbing for listeners on the left as for those on the right. Well, with that uh, clarion call, or maybe clarion warning, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, as ever, thank you very much for A your pleasure. insight. Nicholas T. Parsons, you've written in the May edition of The Critic magazine an article, Art for Oligarch's Sake, where you find great fault with the state of the modern art market and indeed the taste of those who buy it and those who create it. Um, aren't you just in a, in a long tradition of old fogies who need to get down with the kids and understand the world's moved on? Well, the answer to that, of course, is 
Yes and no. Not all old fogies has been wrong is the first answer. But the second answer, perhaps uh, more to the point. Um, I think one must be very cautious about uh, cultural criticism generally because you have to be aware that uh, art production, indeed literature and music production, are partly the result of the economic and political and social conditions in which they are produced. And you must never lose sight of that. And if you'll forgive me to quote one sentence from Jean-Francois Lyotard, I think it explains something about modern art and possibly where we're having difficulty with it. He says, eclecticism is the degree zero of contemporary general culture. One listens to reggae, watches a Western, eats McDonald's food for lunch and local cuisine for dinner, wears Paris perfume in Tokyo and retro clothes in Hong Kong. Knowledge is a matter for TV games. Now, whether one regards that as an old fogey attitude or not, of course, there is a great deal of truth in it. And that is part of the problem that I think we have in reacting to an art that is in fact a product of such a culture and of consumerism. So, I mean, isn't this the point, though? You know, there's a, what you call consumerism, we might call the, the free market. If people want to buy art which reflects uh, the consumerism of our society, surely that's no different from a, a Medici buying uh, art of, of a religious nature, which was so dominant to uh, uh, the society of Florence at that time? Uh, obviously, people should be able to buy what they want. And obviously, it's not true that there is no audience for this market. Whether the audience know or can articulate what they are buying is perhaps another matter. If I can just make uh, a, one historical comparison. Um, if, you, um, if you go and see, for example, Goya's um, Madrid 188, a very iconic, famous picture, um, any Spaniard, whether lettered or not unlettered, would know uh, very substantively what that is about. Um, and the reason is quite simple. It is, of course, representative of an actual historical event. It speaks deeply to uh, Spanish uh, national feeling and so on and so forth. Now, many of the objects and pictures and so on which uh, may be uh, consumed but not usually purchased, I hasten to add, because the most sensationalist things for which huge sums are spent are, as I said in my article, really the preserve of oligarchs. A lot of the rest of the stuff is kind of uh, imitative um, and uh, not going to make it because it doesn't have the power of the gallery owners and the auction houses behind it. Um, so th th there isn't quite such free choice that, that you suggest. I mean, it is a question, of course, of money, just as you said the Medici's had the money, and the ordinary person, ordinary folks, couldn't really buy what a Medici could buy. But the other point I would just make is that um, hitherto um, art has been uh, created almost uh, entirely in a specific uh, socio and political context. By that I mean that if you take, for example, uh, go to a medieval church, a small church in Austria, where I live a lot of the time, very often you will see a painting perhaps uh, relating to the life of the saint to whom the church is dedicated. And in the bottom-hand corner, you have two donors. 
who are featured uh, there as having uh, spent the money to donate this particular um, picture. And those people, of course, are doing it for rather different reasons um, from a modern art buy in the sense that they got religious brownie points for their uh, contribution. Uh, and they also, of course, would have to had to accept that the image that they had purchased for the church was conforming to certain quite uh, um, strictly regulated framework, nominally, of course, um, the Christian religion and Christian dogma and uh, other uh, uh, restrictions that would be placed on the artist. They couldn't have um, just had a picture of a horse um, eating its food or something. Well, you make a uh, you make a very interesting uh, comment. You you quote Leonardo da Vinci in your article saying, "Art breathes from containments and suffocates from freedom." Is your point that the the globalization of of money and consumerism has led to a a breakdown of of taste, uh, which has affected creativity? Um, I think it has led to a breakdown of. Uh, orientation for the individual. And actually, uh, I think this is a point, this is perhaps almost a banal point made frequently um, in regard to the rise of populism generally, what is called populism at any rate. But it's a kind of um, not-so-mute protest against the crumbling of uh, a world that people knew. And actually, um, uh, Douglas Murray, who I think contributes to your excellent magazine, has also made this point in the, uh, his latest book, you know, The Madness of Crowds. And uh, he says uh, there that there is um, a huge vacuum where um, up until the late 19th century at least, um, uh, religion uh, of one kind or another filled it. And uh, I would add the point uh, that Islam, the great strength of it, is that in fact it supplies an explanation of who we are, why we're here, and where we're going, which of course Christianity no longer does for the vast majority of people. And it, it tends to flail around trying to find some kind of meme that it can apply. Um, and uh, it very often fails to do so, except, of course, still in the, in the uh, developing world, where, where it is much stronger as a religion, I mean, than it is uh, in the consumerist, um, globalist world that uh, we live in. And, and isn't that the point, though, uh, you know, in, in particularly in the Western world where uh, religious faith is much weaker than it was in, in previous centuries? Uh, consumerism is the secular religion of our times, and therefore isn't it just natural that artists are reflecting it and, and portraying it? Doesn't it show their, their relevance to today's I think world? that the uh, artists themselves are somewhat at sea. There are, um, uh, if, if, it depends where you sort of start the whole process. And if you start it with basically modernism, and you say that that has been going for, shall we say, 150 uh, years or so, which I think is a not unreasonable time span to take, um, we are now apparently in an age of uh, postmodernism. This started earlier, I mean, we had the Dadaist movement, which was uh, originally composed in sanctuaries, if you like, from the uh, chaos and horrors of the First World War, 
has elements of absurdism and nihilism, as, as everybody knows. Um, that and other idealistic left-wing movements, uh, the suprematists and people in Russia, had an underlying belief in the power of art to change humanity, to change people's way of life, to create a better society. Uh, postmodernism has now been reduced very often to what's called the ironic statement. But the real problem that I see with it is that it has itself become part of the consumerism of which it sometimes pretends to be a critique. And I think you see that as I tried to make uh, the point in my article in the financial structures, uh, some of which are extremely cynical, uh, underlying the whole art market. Well, I want to move on to that point because you, you refer to the, what you call the, the dealer-led commodification of contemporary art. Can you just unpack what you mean by that expression? Well, if I may just refer back to my medieval example, um, is the... The, the, the modern approach to, of a collector is, of course, to be seen to be at the cutting edge and the avant-garde, but he may probably need an advisor to tell him that. In other words, there's not some kind of conviction that this thing is beautiful. Um, the point is it's a good investment. I'm talking about the uh, oligarchs. Uh, on, and such people who are who are buying these huge with these huge sums of money at auction, and uh, don't forget, of course, that there have been numerous articles, uh, to my knowledge, pointing out that actually a lot of this is a form of money laundering. So all this has little to do with uh, I hate to say the word traditional views of art, but with the kind of view of art which felt that it had a very specific and important uh, uh, social relevance, a deepening of people's understanding uh, of the society they live in. And if I may give one example, going back to the Middle Ages again, if you go to the Palazzo Comunale in Siena, you see very, uh, very wonderful frescoes of good governance and bad governance. And these were, of course, available to unlettered uh, people and unlettered uh, and uh, audience who would know uh, very much what they were about. Maybe some of the allegory or symbolism was difficult for them, but if you look at uh, bad governance, the uh, fresco that still remains of that, most of that's disappeared, you see a, an armed band roving in the countryside, and whereas good governance in the countryside shows the uh, business of medieval life, feudal life, going on in its usual rhythm and harmony. Um, that is a huge, huge difference in the whole concept of what art is for from uh, what we now have as a consumer object uh, for the 1%. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, the highest price stuff. And is there an assumption when you talk about this 1% uh, that, uh, in essence, they don't, they, they don't know aesthetically what they're talking about? They're looking at it purely in investment terms, and actually, in doing so, they are prey to the, the spin of public relations executives 
uh, and other hype merchants within the within the art world. Yes, I mean that that is my view. I'm I'm not an art historian. I'm not an expert, but I see from some of the uh, writings of people who are experts, people like Ben de Grosvenor, for example, um, that this is very much the feeling now. Because if you have uh, an auction market that is basically rigged, which I'm afraid uh, is really the only way you can describe a lot of auctions, um, then, of course, you really have a situation where uh, the people who are, uh, as it were, the victims of this are not only um, the, the rest of us, because perhaps it is um, not a matter of great importance to the rest of us, but it's certainly a matter of considerable importance for the uh, for the purchasers who, as I say, usually it appears, if they're oligarchs, relying on advisors. But just one other point about that, the... Um, uh, when Sachi, who is the uh, great patron of a lot of these modern uh, artists originally, and pumped them, helped to pump them up, but when he sold off quite a lot of them because he thought, well, there's something new coming, of course there was complete outrage among the artists because uh, the value of their works was likely to plummet. And uh, that was an interesting uh, example of how uh, money, as it were, was controlling the market rather than other considerations of taste and aesthetics and all the other things that we talk so much about when we're thinking about culture, high culture. Well, it certainly does. But if this level of high culture has sold out to uh, the oligarchs and the Chinese billionaires and, and the uh, the, the, the spin doctors, isn't there a huge opportunity for other artists to turn their back on that world and, and appeal, the money might not be so, quite so good, but, but appeal for the other 99% of the market? Well, I, I think that ought to be true. Um, I wonder whether it actually works in practice. Um, uh, I was reading a book the other day about the art market generally uh, by a Dutch scholar, and it was extremely interesting. You say the run-of-the-mill galleries, I suppose he was talking about Holland, uh, sell what they can um, to people. And he said, it's, he implied at any rate, that it's rather like when you buy a new car. The painting loses 30% of its value uh, when you leave the showroom, you know. And uh, this is also obviously a problem because uh, it, it costs a lot of money for people uh, even to buy a second or third rank uh, uh, piece of of art, of course they can buy i mean I have my taste in art is landscape, which is very traditional of course um, and uh, there are lesser landscape uh, people uh, who you can buy at a really nearly affordable price, um, but you 're going to have to put your hand in your pocket for any known name. So it's going to be um, a fairly wealthy collector even buying uh, stuff that is not the cutting edge. Uh, and the cutting edge, if that is supposed to be the cutting edge and also supposed to be the future of art, uh, is out of the reach of the normal uh, person. But if I could just um, expand rather than get sort of slightly bogged down on the uh, on the money side of it, um, I, I think the meaning of a work of art is something that is terribly important. Um, and I think some of the public's resistance to this, uh, the way in which the modification and the obscurity or opacity of uh, modern art was going, was uh, triggered perhaps originally in 1975, 
And you remember that that was the year in which the Tate bricks uh, were, were bought. And I'm just uh, quoting from something I wrote a long time ago. Um, I think I was actually quoting a wonderful article in the Sunday Times, which was extremely funny. Um, uh, Carl Andre, the, the sculptor, um, decided it was time to create low sculptures. He bought 120 bricks from a brickyard, arranged them in a low pile on the floor of an art gallery, put a price tag of $12,000 on them, of course, a lot more then than it is now, and waited for customers. None came. Being short of money, he took the bricks back to the brickyard and got his money back. Uh, the tale thereafter has an inevitability worthy of the late Gerald Hoffner. In 1972, the Tate saw a photograph of Andre's bricks and offered to buy them. Andre went back to the brickyard only to find it had closed. However, nothing daunted, he found some other bricks, which in due course were created and sent to London together with careful instructions on their assembly. Now, uh, that is in a way the turning point, in my view, where people, instead of just being told, well, this is the cutting edge art and, uh, you know, like Jeffrey, Jeff Koons' supporters say, that's the way the world is and take it up with the world, not with us, uh, if you don't like it, where I think you began to see some uh, intellectual pushback. Um, again, some of the presumptions of uh, modern artists, which is not to say that all, all of them are bad. It's not to say that the old fogies are right when they say, um, my five-year-old uh, could do better. After all, Mozart was five years old when he made his first composition, and the most beautiful work by Mendelssohn is his octet, and that was written when he was 16. So uh, it, it's not necessarily to say that, to say, nevertheless, uh, we're asking more searching questions about this kind of thing. And the, the, the more searching questions, they are going to come just from lots of individuals making uh, small judgments and perhaps small purchases in, in auction houses across uh, the Western world, or is it going to come in the art schools, uh, or, or, or where, where, where is that going to come from? Um, I, I would suspect that it probably comes from the art schools uh, in the first instance. Um, I, a friend of mine used to work as a, a, a PA, um, I think it was in the old St. Martin's School of Art, and she remembers vividly the day that David Hockney came, uh, and the, the pupils all were waiting for uh, a, a good hour of wonderful art speak of the most incredibly impressive uh, th theorizing about art. And uh, Hockney came in and adjusted his spectacles and said, get out your pencils, to the absolute horror, of course, of all the art students. And uh, I think that's a little cameo of a moment when uh, this sort of thing is going to meet some resistance. That David Hockney is obviously a very great artist and obviously a very great craftsman. And he's also experimental and using new media. Uh, but he doesn't have this kind of intellectual pretentiousness and I feel also a kind of hypocrisy uh, because um, I think Pascal Bruckner um, makes the remark somewhere in one of his writings. He says that all intellectuals um, uh, in France, he, he generalizes a little, um, uh, presume to be greatly against the establishment, but almost all of them are receiving a subsidy of some kind, direct or indirect, from the establishment. So uh, on that thought of uh, state-supported uh, art, 
the rest of us will get out our pencils. Uh, Nicholas, T Nicholas T. Parsons, thank you very much for your interest. Thank you indeed. Miriam, Elia, so many of the great satirists and cartoonists uh, the artists who really produced works of bite, they tried to pull down the trousers of the rich and famous, uh, the caricatures of politicians and the high and mighty. A lot of your satirical art, though, Miriam, it, it's, it's picking at, at attitudes and, and social classes and a, a kind of comfortable, slightly pseudo-middle-class attitude. Why are you picking on, on good, ordinary, middle-class folk? Why aren't you, uh, um, why, why aren't you attacking the, the lords and the... Well, I think they always say create things about, you know, write what you know. And if, you, if you've been immersed in liberal hypocrisy from the time that you were born, then you know it well. I think that there's also something I like about being more generalised. It doesn't suit me to go for individuals. I might detest someone, but I let them speak. Um, it just doesn't appeal to me, but uh, I, I also find that work that is more generalised becomes a bit more timeless. Certain scandals or politicians or or public figures, you know, they, they it's here one day, gone the next, and then the work kind of it only goes as far as that particular scandal or particular person. Whereas with my work, it it becomes more about an entire way of thinking in our in our society. The, the, the chattering classes, it's a spoof on that. And I think that's slightly more timeless. I, I, a lot of my work is influenced by brilliant comedy writers like Galton and Simpson. And what they did with, with Hancock's Half Hour back in the 50s, some of those comedy sketches are just timeless. And they're not really about anyone specific. Because as I said, like the figures in those episodes just come and go. You don't... I don't even know who they're referencing half the time, but, but the themes, you know, they're still relevant now. It still makes me laugh. Have the, the chattering classes, the, the, uh, the intellectual or self-reverentially intellectual end of the middle class, have they always been your target, or is this something that, that's evolved uh, during, your work, during your life work? Uh, it's evolved. You know, I have a, a quite surreal um, aspect to my work. It's, I didn't. Uh, I didn't arrive in it overnight. I think when I started university, art school, at that time, I started to understand the kind of silliness of the radical left, and I didn't didn't enjoy it much. And um, I love poking fun at people. And I, I have to say, most of my friends follow radical leftist ideas still. So I suppose my work was a way of talking to them or, or mocking them. I, I love them still. It's just a, a sort of a way of, of holding, them, holding the mirror up, if you want. Your radical friends who you like mocking, what, what is their response? Are they charmed to know that they've made such an impact that they can be caricatured? Or, or, or do, they, do, you, do they find your line of attack rather wearisome and, and insufficiently uh, admiring of their high principles? They do. They like, everyone likes to laugh at themselves. I think that's the... Uh, some people do. Uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing people now that have literally no sense of humour, but um, I think there's a lot of um, false empathy, false kindness, caring is a facade, and uh, and I, I find it hilarious, because I know that we're all a bunch of spoiled hedonists. So I did, I did wonder, when you, when you said you, uh, you know, you like to 
portray the world you know. I mean, I do wonder whether, though you may have different uh, political views, whether really this is part of your natural milieu all the Probably. same. Probably. I mean, you, 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 there's a part of me that, that, that buys into it. I, you know, I come from Muswell Hill, for Christ's sake, you know, and I've got, gone to art school. My family, everything around me was sort of wacky, socialist, left field, the whole spiel, if you want. <laughs> I'm... I've I've been grown I've grown up in it and I've been indoctrinated into it, but but at a certain point I, re- I realised I was being indoctrinated. I think it was because I was fascinated with the Soviet Union at school. I don't know why. Um, so I just went and read a lot of books about communism, and I I've, and I'm really interested in what's happening now with this sort of nanny state kind of uh, using empathy to 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 manipulate people, making those connections. But um, I wasn't always very political. I think it just came after we go to the gallery. It was a direct attack on the arts establishment. The arts establishment is a, is the church of of this. So for for any listeners who 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 don't know this work, uh, uh, we go to the gallery. It was a, a spoof of a Ladybird book, which really kick started what then became Ladybird itself sending up itself. Would that be a fair? Summary? Yeah, I mean, I think they. That's a whole other story, but they took they. They realised I'd created something that was appealing to people, and but they didn't like what I'd done, so then they tried to destroy what I'd done, and then they thought, well, we'll do a kind of lightweight version for the general public, and they got two comedy writers on board, and, and you know, what they do is what they do, but I we go to gallery was... It's it's not it's not just a laugh at Ladybird, it's, it's really about the art world that I, that I was raised in, which I was. And I think there was always a conflict between the values I... I learned through Orthodox Judaism and conflicting with the, the art school kind of hedonism, nihilism, whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's fair to say that you grew up in a background which, which prized comedy and satire, and in fact you, uh, art and caricatures are, are very much in your family family genes. Yes, they are. My, my grandfather was a um, famous caricaturist who... Who actually um, spoofed individual politicians and celebrities? And I think he was working for most of the twenty. He was the same age as twentieth century, which is interesting. So he was born in eighteen ninety nine, and he died in nineteen ninety nine, and uh, he was the same day as, as you know, same age as the year. So in nineteen sixty four, he was sixty four. <laughs> I love that about my granddad. Um, my uncle was quite a famous punk called Philip Salon, who also had quite a satirical streak to him. He was a punk and cl- a club owner, and he did all these weird things in the 80s with Boy George and, and a lot. So there's, there's quite a sense of humour in my family, I think. And so your, your cartoonist grandfather, Ralph Salon, I mean, he, he was, in the 1940s and 1950s, a uh, cartoonist and a caricaturist for The Daily Mirror, uh, so, yeah. I mean, he was uh, sending up the the rich and powerful and conservatives uh, for a, a very much yeah. a left-leading newspaper. Uh, so you really have become at one at one level you've stayed you've stayed in the family business, but at another level it, it's it's like you are uh, you're, you're now um, you're, you're now you're now working for for the competition. <laughs> yeah. The world's gone upside down. It's not as it was when he was young. I'm pretty sure of that the left is now the party of of the of the wealthy of the the, the champagne communists of Tuffnell Park and Muswell Hill and the areas that I was raised in.
but it's not the same as the 60s anymore. But my grandfather, oh, he's a funny man. He did say, he said to my, my mother once, they were walking through Golders Hill Park, and he pointed to a house that was really quite beautiful. And it, it belonged to an artist that he knew that was a portrait artist and flattered people, uh, obviously, through portraiture. And he said to my mother, look how else you get when you lie to people. <laughs> I'm sure he would be delighted to know that you are now, that his granddaughter is now artist in residence alongside Adam Dant, cohabiting in the artist in residence role with Adam Dant as at the Critic magazine. Um, your, your work appears in, in, in the Critic magazine every month. Uh, you've had a boon in, in, in recent times with, with Brexit and, and some of the uh, the shock horror of the chattering classes over that. Is, is, is coronavirus uh, you know, the, the next big thing for you, or, or is, it, um, is it too macabre to, to make comedy of? No, of course it isn't. There's nothing too macabre, except maybe a few things. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think... I think there's a virus going around, and I think the reaction to it is in the same vein as the reaction to everything over the last four or five years, which is just unhinged hysteria. I think we just watch too many disaster movies. I also think we're quite spoiled and want disaster. <laughs> I think there's a craving for it, let's say. You've got a rich vein to mine in, in that case. It's almost a luxury, isn't it, to be able to do this? What, what, what struck me when it first started, all the kind of driving around and loo paper and pasta and you might never see your mum. You know, it's all, it's, a, it's theatrical. I thought it, it struck me as theatrical. And I think with the liberal left, it, everything they do is, is unhinged and, and theatrical, and that's why a lot of them work in the arts. <laughs> and now with coronavirus, you have the all the opportunities for for the nanny state uh, and everything that uh, the chattering classes yearn for and, and wish for, uh, being supported yeah. almost across every section of society, apart from a, a, a few wild sceptics, uh, uh, some of whom uh, produce their work for the critic. <laughs> By me. <laughs> We're this generation that's been raised with really quite a lot of wealth and in relative stability. We've never had to fight in a war. You, you turn on the television and there's this constant reference to World War Two. We're constantly reading about the past and all the struggles, you know, that people went through. And maybe subconsciously people want to struggle again. So they want they want to have uh, some difficulties. They because things are just too easy. So they create these um, hysterical, media-driven fantasies, and then the next minute, you, you know, we're living in it. <laughs> but it's very much driven by the, the liberal London media crowd, you know. Miriam, it, it sounds like you're going to have no shortage of uh, material to stimulate uh, your... Uh, your art, the, the, the middle class muse is uh, is in your studio and already semi-draped. So I'm, so. I'm sitting here now thinking about doing a whole book on it, on COVID-19, um, because I do I do see the funny side of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm debating whether I can actually do it in time. I will continue doing my paintings for the critic <laughs> and hopefully put a whole book together. 
Well, Miriam, there's, there's a huge amount of material to draw on, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.